Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Douglas Wilson. This is episode 296. It is scarcely to be believed that we've gone through 296 of uh, these, but we have. I want to talk a little bit today about what I might what might be called the smell of resentments. The smell of resentments. When somebody wrongs somebody else, when somebody wrongs somebody else, and that somebody else is bruised or offended or hurt, and they are complaining to an authority or complaining to a pastor. Or, and this can happen when a husband mistreats a wife or when a wife mistreats a husband or when parents mistreat kids or when, a, when an employer abuses his employees. The behavior is objectionable. And when the behavior is objectionable, people object. But there's uh, the objection itself, and then there is the manner that the objection is registered. So it is possible for someone to have a legitimate complaint and to make that complaint illegitimately. So when, when you become bitter, when you become resentful, let's say someone uh, lied about you and told, uh, spread that lie all over town. And let's say that they really did lie, and you really weren't imagining it. It really was a bad thing that they did, and it really did harm you, and you become bitter. There are two things that are going on. One of them is the lie, and the other is the bitterness. Two things. Now, when the person sinned against loses all their joy, they're not losing their joy because of the lie. They're losing their joy because of the bitterness. God doesn't, if someone sins against me, God doesn't take away my joy. If they sin against me and then I retaliate and sin against them in return by hating them in my heart or by resenting them or conducting imaginary conversations with them in my head, the reason I lose my joy is because of my sin, not theirs. Someone has wisely said that bitterness of this sort is like eating a box of rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. No. If I tell if I tell a lie, every time I think of the situation, I think of my lie and I and the Holy Spirit would be writing my case convicting me that I need to put that right. Whenever I think of about the lie, I think about my sin. But if someone lies about me or mistreats me or kicks me in the head and whenever I think about the situation now, I think about their lie, but I don't think about my resentment. I don't think about my bitterness. Now, all this is a setup to talk about ethnic relations in North America. I have seen, and this is quite striking, actually, I have seen ethnic resentments that are bubbling out of legitimate complaints, and I have seen generational resentments bubbling out of legitimate complaints. So uh, when, when this happens and you talk to someone about what, what they're doing and they point to the offense, they point to the objective sin, they, there is often something there to actually point to. So 
and I've been, some of this is surprising, some of it not. So let's say, let's say you get passed over for a promotion and the person who gets the promotion is someone who is three times less qualified for it than you are. And so let's say that, that it was done by some, it was rigged by someone in HR who hates you, or the company was going off of a, they, we needed to, they needed to promote a certain number of quota queens. They needed to, they needed a Samoan Pacific Islander in there. And so they passed over you despite your qualifications. It's possible when you're talking to, about this to your family or friends, it's possible to say, it's not the promotion I mind, lost, the missing of the promotion I mind, it's the principle of the thing. Now, there's a certain tone of voice or a certain smell that comes off of that complaint that indicates when you say it's the principle of the thing, frequently it is not the principle of the thing. It's, it's the hurt. It's the resentment. Now, abusing people through uh, ignoring qualifications and promotion and b- both the old-time system of racial discrimination, ethnic discrimination, and the newfangled forms of ethnic discrimination are, uh, are just offensive, and people, people take offense. But when they take offense, there's that telltale smell of resentment that, as far as the Christian life is concerned, wrecks everything. I've seen the same thing happen with uh, young people who are coming of age, and there's the, when they respond with the OK Boomer thing, there is an objective loss that many of them feel, having grown up without a dad, for example. Having or grown up with, you know, dad was the president of the Chamber of Commerce and he was never home. And functionally, they had no dad. And so boomers represent to them the dad they never had. And so there's a generational resentment. So when the boomers do something that uh, the millennials or the Gen Xers don't like, there is the, there's the complaint on the one hand, is this a legitimate objective complaint? And there frequently is one that really is legit. But then there is the smell of resentment. So when people start talking about boomers or the Jews or blacks or victim women or whatever it is that the the woke are pushing at us, whatever their agenda is, there is A, the objection to what they're doing. And then B, B is what Christians need to be uh, careful to keep themselves entirely free of, which is the smell of those resentments. We have to fight in the joy of the Lord, in other words. The joy, as Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Always will be God. So continuing on with episode 296 in the podcast, uh, we are students of hamartiology, enrolled in the College of Sin, so to speak, and the words we are looking at represent sins in the Greek New Testament. We come now to the word uh, thanateforas, thanateforas, T-H-A-N-A-T-E-P-H-O-R-O-S, thanateforas, which means deadly. Okay, it means deadly. Now, obviously, there are things that are deadly out there in the world that are not sinful in themselves. If you eat a poinsettia plant, I'm not sure why you would, but maybe your toddler would. If you eat a a poinsettia plant, bad things will happen. But buying a poinsettia plant for Christmas is just fine. You can take it from me. The pastor pastor said that poinsettias are fine, but they're deadly. Okay, if you eat them or if anybody eats them, 
there's some, there's going to be a problem. But there is a form of deadliness that is, in fact, a moral issue. It's morally deadly. And we can see this in how James refers to it in the sinfulness of the tongue. The sinfulness of the tongue. In James 3.8, he says, But the tongue can no man tame. The tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. There's our word, thanatephoros, full of deadly poison. So the tongue can do a lot of damage, full of restless wickedness. It contaminates and kills whatever it touches. And yet the way many people talk, it's like they're slinging around arsenic and cyanide for purposes of personal entertainment. They don't think that the tongue is deadly. It's like going to the firing range uh, with somebody who's who has never been taught gun safety, and you don't do. Uh, you're thinking, oh, don't do that. Don't point it there. Don't uh, ah ah, <laughs> right? Um, the, uh, anybody who uh, understands gun safety knows that you treat the gun as though it's always loaded. You treat the gun as though it's always loaded. And that's how we should treat the tongue. The tongue is always loaded. And if you have any kind of sensitive conscience at all, you understand that, okay, there was a time where I said something, I thought it was a harmless joke. For three weeks, I was involved in the cleanup after that one. And that's because the tongue is like a loaded pistol. It's full of unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Deadly. Thanatophoros. God don't never change. He's God. All right. So for the uh, book review for this podcast, I want to review a, a book I just recently finished. Uh, it's called uh, Domestic Extremist. Domestic Extremist by a woman named Peachy Keenan. I'm not kidding. Peachy Keenan. So K-E-E-N-A-N. Peachy Keenan, domestic extremist. She is um, not a prairie muffin. She argues vigorously in favor of, as she puts it, you need to maximize the number of children you have and minimize the number of spouses you have. So minimize the spouses, maximize the kids. So she's uh, sort of all in on the value of the domestic front, but she she does it without without uh, adding some of the additional trappings. Like she she writes as a modern woman and not someone who's writing from the spotty in- internet connection that she has at the Waltons. But she really is a domestic extremist. She uh, goes after it. She goes after feminism hard. And really, uh, and she is a very capable writer. She's a very funny writer. She has a way with her way with her pen, and she's able to sort of glorify what needs to be glorified and uh, set aside what needs to be set aside and expose what needs to be exposed. This is, uh, if, if basically, if you have a, uh, a teenage girl or if you are a young housewife sort of struggling with your calling, you've got, you're, you're at home with the littles and you're feeling stuck. This would be a great book to listen to. This would be a great book to listen to while you're folding the laundry, a great book to listen to while you're uh, engaged in cooking yet another meal. This book is going to be full of bracing encouragement. 
what you're doing is one of the most important things on the planet. So the way feminism has structured this is if you are sitting in a big skyscraper somewhere in a cubicle checking emails, that is considered to be an important real job. And if you were at home in suburbia shaping immortal souls <laughs> to equipping them to live the kind of life that would be uh, worth living, then that's somehow disparaged. That's somehow sneered at. So uh, you're at a so some social event and someone says, what do you do? Do you work? Now, if you're at home, the ex the answer is no, I don't work. I don't work. Well, what that means is you work from 5.30 a.m. to 9.30 p.m. <laughs> That's what it means. Um, and so it's it's sort of a, a singular misuse of the English language. It's sort of like um, when you drive through a big city and you see the sign for an adult bookstore. An adult bookstore is where grown men go to, to act like children. It, th this is not an adult, mature sort of thing. Why, why do we call it adult? Uh, and why, why on earth would we say that a woman who works all the time doesn't work? Well, if you want to have good, uh, solid, honest, good sense spoken to you or to your daughter or to your friends, this would be a, um, this would be a good book. If you have a group of housewives who get together to, you know, they read a book together and they get together once a month, this would be a great book to read for your book group. I think you will find it very encouraging.